Hello everyone, this is Historian Splaining, a historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, and other platforms, and if you can help keep them coming, please go to my Patreon page, the link is in the description. So it's been a while, almost two weeks I think, since I posted my last lecture on the Colonial Caribbean, and I've been busy with several things. You may have heard I collaborating on another podcast called God Save America, about religion in America. I also last week had an interview with an NPR reporter who was talking to historians about putting the pandemic into historical perspective and how to weigh it and maybe compare it against other crises like the Second World War. So I'll post uh, the link to that in the description as well. It's just a short commentary and the journalist took a little clip and quotation from me for that short report, but there may be a longer feature on the NPR website later. But regardless, be that as it may, it is time for another Myth of the Month. This will be Myth of the Month number 15 on The State. So this may sound to many people like an odd topic for a Myth of the Month, but there is a very technical and particular way that especially scholars, people in history or political science or philosophy, talk about the state in the modern world, which may not be entirely familiar to the entire general audience. So it's important to draw certain distinctions to make it clear what is this myth that I'm talking about. So it's common for people in academic or intellectual or pseudo-intellectual circles to talk about the state in a very general and abstract way as a kind of entity, a sort of, you could say, trans-historical, trans-geographic entity that exists over and above any particular state here or there. So it may be familiar to talk about the state in reference to specific autonomous units within a larger federal nation, such as the state of Ohio in the United States, or perhaps the state of Minas Gerais in Brazil, or the state of Yucatan in Mexico. And you may also know that in addition to that, it's also become customary to refer to completely independent sovereign entities as states, like, say, Denmark. <laughs> I'll mention Denmark again later. Or Australia or Sri Lanka as independent states or sovereign states. But even beyond that, there is now a common custom of referring to the state as a sort of abstract entity, a kind of archetype that exists anywhere in the world and has a kind of nature and qualities above and beyond any particular instantiation of a state. So when we talk about a state, customarily we mean a polity, a political grouping of some sort, 
that has a government or a regime, but the state is not exactly the same thing as the government. Rather, it's some sort of more permanent entity that continues through time and that gives authority to that government. So governments and governmental bodies like police or militias are understood to have authority and legitimacy because they derive their powers from this singular unitary entity called the state. And you can even speak of the state as a kind of creation that is, you could say in a sense, eternal and that remains and abides even as particular government officials come and go or even as entire regimes and constitutions come and go. So, you know, the example, and I'll talk about this more later, the, the sort of central example of this is France, which has gone through different regimes, monarchical, imperial, republican, over the decades, and yet it still remains as France, and France continues to be a kind of enduring entity. This idea of the state, it's certainly connected to the idea of the nation, but not all states are necessarily nation states. There are states that are multi-ethnic or multilingual. There are states that are dynastic, organized around a ruling house, sort of without regard to ethnicity. So those two things aren't necessarily intrinsically linked. And states can also be confederations. Like if you think of the United States of America, we still use this word state in reference to these smaller constituent entities that retained some powers and prerogatives apart from the national government. So states can take on many different forms. Their governments can change and be replaced, but the state itself is understood to be permanent and enduring a distinct entity with special powers and qualities, which can be summed up roughly with the catch-all term sovereignty. A state is a state because it is sovereign. It has a supreme authority, at least within a certain country or territory. On the one hand, historians understand the state, maybe unlike other uh, scholars in other fields like political science, historians understand the state historically as a product of gradual historical evolution. But nonetheless, if you speak of the state, you're still sort of implying a teleological understanding of history, that even if it took time for the state as we understand it in the modern world, this singular sovereign entity with exclusive authority over a territory, even if you understand that as a product of history, you look at history as leading in some sort of inevitable or inexorable way up to the creation of the state. And this is very much a central theme of modernization theory, whether you're talking about it in a Marxian sense or a Weberian sense, and I'll talk about that later, explain a bit what that means. But basically, it's it implies a way of understanding history that it it's all unidirectional and that in some way the natural course of events was to bring the state as we understand it into being. And if you just look through 
common journals of social history or political history, you see these assumptions implicit in the way people write about the state as a historical subject. And there are just a few examples that you can find with a quick search, like articles titled State Formation and Social Change in Early Modern England, which is from Social History in 1991. So this is a common phrase, state formation. <laughs> the notion that you're not you're not just talking about particular laws or institutions or practices, you're talking about this entity, the state, coming into being, forming through time. Another example is the early modern English state and the question of differentiation from 1550 to 1700, which is in Comparative Studies in Society and History from 1996. So in a lot of ways, a lot of these sort of abstract, theorized social and political history is built around this notion that the state is a sort of self-evident entity, something that we can all observe, and it's only a matter of drawing and tracing out through time how it came into being. And as you can tell from these little examples, I just threw out the early modern era and Western Europe, including Britain, are understood to be sort of the, the epicenter of this process of state formation. So, okay, to some people, this way of talking about the state might sound strange it might sound extremely theoretical. To other people, it might just seem obvious. Of course, we have a modern state with legislative and police powers and military powers, and this is the regime that has come into being over time. But it's important to recognize that this way of talking about the state is very new. And if you try to talk about the state in this way, when you're referring to ancient or medieval times, you're going to get very confused. What Was there a state in, say, ancient Babylonia or in a classical Greek polis? Is a polis a state? Is a medieval kingdom a state? There's going to be all kinds of confusion here. This way of talking about the state is new and it came about because of particular situations and dilemmas in the modern world within about the last 300 years. And it is a dramatic transformation from how the word state used to be used, even in the English language and even when talking about political issues. State used to be a broad catch-all term for condition or situation, right? And we still use the word state this way when we talk about someone's state of affairs or your state of health or your state of mind. It's just the current situation, the current arrangement of circumstances. And when people used the word state to talk about rulers or regimes, for hundreds of years they just meant the particular situation that is in place in a country in a given time. And they weren't talking about the state as this kind of enduring, abstract entity that imbues regimes or institutions with authority. That's a really new idea. And you can see that this change in the way we talk about the state has really pervasive effects, whether or not you're, you know, woven into this academic theoretical world. Even sort of everyday talk has shifted into this new way of thinking of the state that 
would have made no sense a few hundred years ago. So now we think of the state as this kind of fundamental, permanent entity, this particular sphere or building block of society that you can juxtapose with civil society or the church or culture. And it's assumed that it's the norm or default of human life to live in a state of some kind or to live under the authority of a state. And I think that's particularly illustrated in the way people use phrases like stateless people. So if you talk about, say, Kurds in Syria or Bedouin people in the Middle East, it's normal now to refer to these people as stateless because they don't have a passport issued to them from a particular government and they're not recognized as citizens or subjects of any particular state, so they're stateless. And think for a moment about how bizarre that would be if we are thinking of state in the older, more broader, looser sense of situation or circumstances. What would it mean then to say these people are stateless? You know, that's, that's impossible. And yet that is how we have to think of people now as being somehow aberrant or misfits if they are not tied directly to some regime that we call a state. So basically in scholarship and also to a great degree in everyday talk about political and legal matters, it's now taken as just a given that the state is part of reality, it is a distinct entity, and that even if it didn't exist at some previous point in the past, it was inevitable that it would form and grow and become what we think of today. And hence we routinely historians talk about expansion of the state or the growth of state power and think of the state as this not only unitary but kind of living evolving growing acting being although people might write the history of the state the basic category or concept that there is such a thing as the state that can be grasped and described and spoken about in this way is real. That concept, that assumption is very rarely ever questioned. And hence this kind of implicit teleology that all of history or modernization was just leading up towards the existence of this thing, the state, that assumption is very rarely questioned. And I think that that shows, on the one hand, the, the power of this notion and how deeply it can embed itself in our thinking. But also, to be fair, I think it shows a certain degree of naivety in the field of history, as opposed to other more philosophical fields where people are more accustomed to stepping back and questioning these sort of mythic narratives and assumptions. And in fact, the tremendous ambiguity in the notion of the state, what counts as the state and what does not, why, how does it exist, where is it located, what are its boundaries, its limits? Those sorts of ambiguities are much more openly acknowledged and grappled with in fields like political theory than they are in history. And so this is one instance where, you know, if you're examining mythology, historians could maybe take cues from other more abstract theoretical fields. But let's go back for a moment and say, okay, what is this ambiguity? If we understand the state to be sort of the permanent entity, the sort of political collective entity 
that then gives authority to a government and outlasts that government or that regime. What are these ambiguities? Well, for one thing, to begin with, what exactly counts as a state? If you think of the state as this unitary thing, this abstract thing like the church or society or culture, well, then how do you know when a certain social collectivity or network is a state and when it is not? How about, for instance, for one example, the Iroquois Confederacy, which began as a close cooperative alliance of five different tribes and which had a very carefully calibrated network of councils and institutions to manage relations among these five tribes. Is that a state? Or if not, was any pre-Columbian indigenous American tribe or group a state? How do you decide and weigh how statey does a group have to be to be a state? And as we said, it is customary and normal today to refer to federal entities like the United States or Switzerland as states. But how unified do they have to be? What if each constituent group still maintains its own military force and its own ability to deal with outsiders diplomatically, such as the Five Nations did in the Iroquois Confederacy, does that still count as a state? If the Iroquois Confederacy does count as a state, well then how about, say, the EU, the European Union? What sort of fine gradation or distinction can you draw to say when a confederated entity is a state and when it is not? And then apart from that, what about other groups that formed in, you could say, unusual ways? Groups or associations that were able to control territory and wield authority within certain territories, but that didn't grow up organically in the way that we think of a nation state like Poland or Bangladesh. So how about a couple of the entities that I mentioned in my last lecture about the Caribbean, such as, for instance, the Knights of Malta, which were originally known as the Knights of St. John or the Knights Hospitaller. So an organization that was formed among celibate knights to carry out crusading missions and which had certain concessions, certain powers and privileges in the crusader states, but then afterwards when the crusader states were lost, they were granted power or sovereignty over the islands of Malta in the Mediterranean so that they could act as a bulwark against the Ottoman Turks. Is Malta under the rulership of the Knights Hospitaller a state? Are we to understand that as a state? And when they then went and colonized and managed colonies in the Caribbean, do they then count as a sovereign state colonizing the Americas? Should they be listed alongside France and Britain and the Netherlands as a colonial power? We don't customarily do that when we talk about the history of the Caribbean. We sort of slot them in maybe as just a footnote under the history of French colonization if we mention them at all. 
even though they were crucial to the creation of a French domain in the Lesser Antilles and the subsequent course of Caribbean civilization, and probably the most important individual in that entire colonization process in the Lesser Antilles was Poincy, the governor of the French Antilles, who was a, a knight of Malta. We don't really acknowledge that or discuss it as part of the story, and I think part of why we don't is because the Knights of Malta fall into this weird gray area where we just don't know how to identify them and fit them into the narrative. And historians who work on the New World, like myself, tend to have no understanding at all of the Crusades or the Crusading Orders. Another example which I think is illustrative, that sprung up within the Caribbean, is Tortuga. So Tortuga, if you listen to my last lecture, you may know it's a somewhat smaller island just off of the northwestern shore of Hispaniola, which is one of the greater Antilles. And it was used as a base mainly by French and English buccaneers, or sort of quasi-legal pirates and corsairs, who wanted to take advantage of the weak defenses of the Spanish colonies. And the buccaneers were so critical in creating a European foothold on Tortuga and making it a base for the northern European powers to encroach on the Spanish domains that they effectively took control of the island and the English and the French at different times attempted to assert their power or sovereignty over Tortuga. But really, in practice, everyone knew that these buccaneer colonizers were in control and that they were setting the rules and norms of that society unto itself. And eventually, they openly associated themselves into a kind of governing group, a kind of confraternity called the Brethren of the Coast. Now, the question then is, all right, if you have this Brethren of the Coast organization basically running Tortuga and legislating and setting policy and dealing with foreign powers, at what point do you say the Brethren of the Coast are a state? So it's another bizarre situation. It's another weird gray area where it it's really becomes impossible in any sort of historical way to say when a state has come into being and what exactly is a state and what is not, when really historically what you have to do is just say who was exercising power and in what ways and over whom. You just have to explain <laughs> what happened and how. So the upshot of these observations that I'm making about instances like the Iroquois Confederacy or the Brethren of the Coast is that this concept of the state as a kind of clear, delineated, unitary entity doesn't really necessarily fit real life. Not only are there these ambiguous gray area situations, but also even when there is supposedly a state in play, that state doesn't really necessarily exercise the kind of exclusive power that a state is supposed to do. And if we go back, for instance, to Tortuga, the 
both the English and the French were asserting their sovereign authority over that island, but they were not really able to assert it, at least not in any sustained way. The real power was still in the hands of Brethren of the Coast until those various colonial powers came to an agreement and a joint arrangement by which they could suppress and destroy this little commonwealth on Tortuga, this commonwealth of buccaneers. And similarly, if we think of the French Antilles under the control of Poincy, still supposedly, formalistically, the sovereign over those islands was the king of France. At least that's what you would be told if you ask the French government. But everyone knew that really in practice, Poincy was running it as a little kind of island kingdom under his own dictatorial control. And this is really more often how life really works, that in fact, power tends to be disputed. There are clashing and contending power bases. And, you know, if you look at the United States under the U.S. Constitution, you can say, well, formalistically, power is divided between the federal government and the states. But the boundaries of those different powers are always shifting and ambiguous, and there are other power bases and power groups, civil society associations, religious groups, families that also exercise extensive power and authority over their social spheres. And so power is really always divided, it's always changing, it's always being negotiated and renegotiated. And some historians will say, well, yeah, sure, that's true, but the tendency, and this is what some scholars have argued, the tendency over time is towards consolidation. And that's why this powerful modern state has emerged. But even if you argue that that is what has happened and that this these very powerful governments with powers of the use of force and, and prison imprisonment and war making and tax collection and control of the money supply and propaganda and surveillance, even if these massive powerful states have emerged, is that really the sort of inevitable fulfillment of a teleological history? Or is that just what has happened in recent times? And it's just been a sort of contingent and unpredictable process that's still happening and still unfolding. I would say we should call into question this idea that history leads kind of inexorably towards state formation and state growth when there are so many counterexamples. You know, states really depend on underlying material conditions in order to function. The ability to keep cities and settlements safe and defended from attack, the ability to produce and move food supplies, and these things are not fixed, and states can easily form and become powerful, if you even want to call them that. Empires, kingdoms, polities can form and then collapse. Why did the Western Roman Empire break up? There are many reasons. I've discussed that before in another lecture. Uh, you, you can think of Charlemagne's empire, the Carolingian Empire. They broke apart over the course of the ninth century because of internal legal and political issues, probably because of climate cooling, and also because of Viking attacks, which just made it impossible to maintain central authority and control in that huge empire. So 
really, if you're looking at the broad sweep of history, there doesn't seem to be anything inevitable about the consolidation of state power. It's just something that can happen in certain ways in certain places and times, and it can be reversible. So I think that that way of talking about history is, I would say, a way of, it's a way of retroactively justifying and rationalizing this notion of the state that we've adopted, which is really a very modern notion and that I would argue doesn't make sense and doesn't fit in most of history, particularly the pre-modern past. It's a very, it's an awkward back projection. And if you try to apply it to situations in the past, you're going to end up with all this confusion about is the Apache nation a state or not? Is the Poland-Lithuania Commonwealth in the 1600s a state or not? Is sovereignty here or sovereignty there? It's a kind of impossible game of trying to fit various square pegs into your round hole. Okay, so let's go back and see if we can trace how it is that this concept of the state emerged and took the shape that we now see. So we can begin with just plain old etymology. Where does this word state come from? Well, in English and it's also its cognates in other languages like French and Spanish, it comes originally from the Latin word status, which also in English has become the word status. And originally in late antiquity and the Middle Ages, this word status or status just meant conditions or circumstances. Like, you know, what's the status of your barn building project? But it started to take on different, more specific meanings and applications over time. It sort of accrued new, particularly political connotations. So in the late Middle Ages, this word status, or eventually in English state, was used to mean standing or status of particular parties in society particular people. What class do you belong to, for instance? Or what is the state or status of this churchman? Is he a bishop? Is he an archbishop? And it was also applied more and more broadly to refer to sort of strata or status layers of society. So in the late Middle Ages, this is when people started to talk about the three estates, right? The three sort of positions that people could be in in society. The first estate, of course, being the clergy, the second estate, the nobility, and the third estate, the commoners. From this point in the late Middle Ages into the early modern era, as we go through the 1400s and into the 1500s, it started to take on an even more narrow and specific meaning, or properly, I should say, two meanings. And one of these meanings was very narrow and tied to one specific person or institution in society. So state more and more came to mean the standing or authority of the monarch. And it only makes sense that this is more and more how the word was used when we're talking about a time of increasing consolidation of power and authority in the hands of monarchs. There were more and more powerful kingdoms at this time, particularly those that had mastered the use of gunpowder and were more able to enforce their authority in an extensive realm. 
So more and more state takes on the connotation of royal authority, right? The, the state in a certain country tends to mean the monarchy, the royal court, and the powers exercised by the monarch. But still at the same time, it continued, the word state also continued to have a broader and looser meaning, which could become even more broad and expansive. So on the other hand, it could mean the general conditions or arrangements of power throughout a society, whether that society is a kingdom or an empire or a republic or a city-state, whatever it is, it can mean this sort of the, the whole picture of this sort of social pyramid and the institutions that hold authority in a certain community. And this way of talking about the state was used particularly by Machiavelli, who was the great philosopher, not only of princedom, as in the prince, but also of republics, which was the subject of his magnum opus, the discourses. So that notion of state also takes hold, especially in societies like in Italy, where many people are living in more republican type arrangements. And you can see there are instances where these two senses of state, the narrow sense and the broad sense, could sometimes come together. If in the early modern world you were thinking more and more about kings and queens and emperors as the ultimate center or even embodiment of the society that they ruled, you could sometimes throw the word out with both connotations. And of course, as you know, the great master of double meanings is Shakespeare. So you can think of this famous line in Hamlet, which was written, you know, in England for an English audience in the early 1600s. In Hamlet, you have a guardsman who has seen the appearance of the ghost of the dead king. And he says, quote, something is rotten in the state of Denmark. This line, you know, it's it's memorable and it's pithy. But it can sound very strange to us today if we assume that this guard means state as in the country of Denmark, right? That's that's not what he means. When you're talking about an entire country, of course, many things are going to be rotten. There's going to be all sorts of stuff rotting, <laughs> literally and figuratively. But rather, when he says the state of Denmark, he means the power arrangement, the location and disposition of authority, specifically royal authority in Denmark. And that makes sense when you consider that Hamlet is all about the legitimacy of Claudius and whether or not he is a murderer and a usurper and whether or not he should be king as opposed to Prince Hamlet. The line takes on a clearer, kind of more graspable meaning when you think of the different, the ambiguities and the different connotations of the word state in that era, in the early modern era. And not surprisingly, this period of the 15 and 1600s is also the time when people more and more start talking about church versus state. So they start speaking of these two, you could say almost mirror image entities 
that have powers and prerogatives divided between them and that sometimes come into conflict over specific disputes, authority, you know, gray area zones of authority, or that come into open dispute over who is supreme. So this notion of church versus state really emerges from the 1500s onward. And it's interesting that people talk about it in this way, because previously, the recurring struggle and theme of conflict through the high and late Middle Ages was not understood as church versus state, but specifically as church versus crown. And that is one of the recurring central themes of medieval politics. And you can think of these examples like the investiture controversy, this very bitter fight between the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor in the 11th century over which one of them had the power to appoint church officials within the empire. Also, the fight between King Henry II and Thomas Becket, the Archbishop of Canterbury in England, over whether the church or the crown had the authority to arrest and try clergy who committed crimes. So this idea that the church and the crown were distinct bases of power and authority that could come into conflict, that was not new. But in the early modern period, people start describing this as church versus state. And in this way, you can see here how as royal regimes consolidated power and took up more and more of the functions that previously might have been left to local nobles or confraternities and guilds, more and more society is, is seen as basically split between two power bases with two complementary spheres of authority. One is the church, which of course has spiritual authority over souls and the hereafter, and then the state, which has earthly, <clears throat> temporal power. And it is the state as opposed to the church, which has the prerogative of using violence and shedding blood. So this is where I think you can see our idea, this notion of the state as this one singular entity that is the font of authority and that that has this exclusive ability to use force and violence. It really takes root in the early modern era in this high point, this golden age of monarchy and royalism. And at this point, still, state could be used almost as a synonym for crown, right? Once the crown has these extensive powers and, is, and things like common law and royal courts and royal uh, ministries have such deep power in society, it's almost like there's no distinction between crown and state. But there is still this tension between the two meanings, right? Is it, do you, when you say state, do you just mean the royal power center or do you mean all of secular non-church power in a society? There's this possible ambiguity and that could be papered over as long as you were fervently royalist and saw the crown as the one ultimate font and focal point of all authority. And hence, state could gradually grow to mean something like authority in a society which is ultimately held and administered by the monarch and flows from the monarch. 
So that sort of makes it possible to put aside or ignore that ambiguity in what you mean by the state. But that would not last forever. The ambiguity and uncertainty of exactly what you mean by the state would then reopen with the decline of monarchy and the increasing overthrow of monarchical regimes. When this happens, the state does not disappear. You can destroy a king and get rid of him, but that doesn't mean there's no longer a state. And rather, this notion, this expansive idea of the state as the one entity, as over and against the church, that actually exercises authority and can back it up with force, that just transfers over to new governments and institutions, many of which are Republican or are some kind of hybrid entity. And probably you're already thinking the obvious paradigmatic example of this is France, right? which was the great center of learning, of philosophy, of art in the Western world through the early modern era and was the site of a massive revolution which ended up, although this was not the initial aim, ended up temporarily overthrowing the monarchy and replacing it with a republic. So the success of royal absolutism is really a necessary precondition for our modern understanding of the state. It is the rise of royal absolutism, especially in France, which was you know, the homeland where absolutism reached its most extreme extent, that is what made our modern understanding of the state possible. And you may think of the famous utterance attributed to Louis XIV, l'état c'est moi, I am the state, as the sort of ultimate statement that the state is one singular <laughs> power power center, like I've been saying. Now, it's very unlikely that Louis XIV really said that. It's apocryphal. It was only attributed to him many years later after he was gone. And in fact, the earliest known references to that utterance were recorded during the French Revolution in the 1790s. And I think that this illustrates how even as revolutionaries were trying to massively reform or transform the workings of power in France, they wanted to preserve this idea that there was a singular unitary state. And in fact, France, even through all of its many changes of regime and constitution over the last 200 years, France has always remained a unitary state. It has never agreed to delegate power or autonomy to subunits. It is part of the ingrained understanding of France that France is unitary, France is one, even to the extent that France's remaining colonies in the Caribbean, like Martinique and Guadeloupe, have fully equal incorporated status as part of France. They do not have this sort of distinct commonwealth or colony status like Puerto Rico with regard to the United States. Rather, Martinique and Guadeloupe and several other French colonies are departments of France, and the residents are citizens of France with the same voting rights and the same representation in Parliament as any department within European France. 
So France in this way is the paradigmatic case. Now, as I said, the the utterance l'état c'est moi is apocryphal. He probably never said that. But there is something else that is attributed to Louis XIV that it's much more likely he really did say because it was recorded by people who knew him and interacted with him at the time. And that utterance is je m'en vais mais l'état demeurera toujours. And this reportedly was one of the last things Louis said on his deathbed, and it means in English roughly, I am going away, but the state remains forever. And that was recorded by a courtier who had personal dealings with Louis XIV, named the Marquis de Danjou. This utterance, even if, even if he didn't really say it, it still was attributed to him at the time and reflect some of the thinking of the royal absolutist court at Versailles. And like Shakespeare's line about something rotten in the state of Denmark, it, I think, reflects a sort of transitional mentality, the, the kind of through line of development and transformation from old medieval ideas of the crown and the special authority of the monarch to our modern idea of the state. So on the one hand, you can see this utterance, je m'en vais, mais l'état demeurera toujours, is simply a restatement of a medieval doctrine of the king's two bodies, which is a way of thinking that certain historians like Kantorowicz have talked about that emerged out of the Middle Ages and became only stronger and more prominent in the early modern era. So the notion that the king is two entities at once. On the one hand, the king is a man with a mortal physical body that can be corrupted and decay and die, just like anyone else. But at the same time, he has a kind of transcendent heavenly body that is not exactly the same thing as a soul. Every, everybody has a soul, according to, to medieval philosophy. It's something peculiar to a monarch that they also have a second body that lives on and that does not die or decay and also does not go to heaven, but merely transfers to the next monarch. And in this view, when you anoint or crown a new ruler, you're simply recognizing and manifesting the fact that this body has taken on a different appearance, but is still the same body in some sense. It is still the heavenly body of the king. And so in, in one sense, you could say Louis XIV was simply affirming this notion that he himself might die, but the state lived on. And yet it's also very significant that he's using this word, l'état, basically as a synonym or a stand-in for the king's heavenly body. The state, in the sense of the regime, the government, now has this sort of share in the heavenly nature, the heavenly divine authority that belongs to the king. And I would argue that this, this idea that the state is a permanent, enduring regime that retains its existence and retains its sovereignty, even as rulers come and go, is a kind of continuation and extension of the notion of the king's heavenly body. And that idea, that notion of the state, continued to be appealing even as people came to reject monarchy and to argue for 
a constitutional or democratic or republican government, they still wanted to retain that sort of divine aura attaching to the idea of the state. And this made it possible then to re-envision new explanations, new justifications for the state and for how it should operate, while not entertaining the idea that these new regimes thereby lost their authority. And in this way, I would say the French Revolution you can see as a kind of decapitation strike. The head of the state, which was the king, was removed, in in one instance, literally decapitated, <laughs> but the state endured, and that kind of aura of special authority was retained. And to varying degrees, people sought to imbue these republican regimes with the same majesty, you could say, through through rituals, through songs and anthems, through emblems, and to keep the state going with that same level of authority. So I would argue France is kind of the crucial crucible in which people created this new understanding of the state. Now, you may know that other countries went through different processes and different transformations. Not every country had a revolution like France's. Some had none at all. Some had very gradual processes of reform or different sorts of revolutions. But they have tended to, I would say, imitate the French example and more and more to borrow this French understanding of the state. So there are countries like Spain and Portugal where... As in France, the crown became very powerful and where the sort of early groundwork of absolutism was laid in the 14 and 1500s. But things went differently in Spain and Portugal. The crown did not set itself up as a distinct power base as against the church, as was the custom in France. There was a strong feeling of Gallicanism, the idea that the French crown should have ultimate authority over the church within France. There was nothing like that in Spain and Portugal, but rather the church and the crown tended to be allied and even to merge their powers together. And the great example of this is the Inquisition. The Holy Office of the Inquisition was a permanent body that borrowed the spiritual authority of the church to judge heresy and enforce orthodoxy, together with the powers of arrest and imprisonment and investigation of the crown. And so in Spain and Portugal for centuries, you had this complicated intertwining of church and state authority in such a way that the very notion of church versus state wasn't really possible. People didn't see them as distinct entities. And Arguably, this makes sense when you consider that France had these very deep roots as a kingdom going back to the Franks and the Merovingian era, whereas Spain and Portugal did not. Spain and Portugal were much newer, and they were born out of crusading. They began as crusader states cobbled together by uh, knights fighting in the reconquest against the Muslim emirate of, of Spain. So... They, their identity as a kingdom, as a polity, was rooted much more in def the defense of the faith and the advancement of the faith and the church. 
So Spain and Portugal really do not even develop a notion of the state as against the church until centuries later, until really the modern state has taken hold as the norm and the model to imitate in recent years. You know, arguably, you could say not until the fall of Franco and Salazar did something like a modern state come into being in Spain and Portugal in the way that we understand it now. And the idea of distinguishing church and state in a society like early modern Spain, for instance, the idea of distinguishing church and state probably just would have made no sense. It was a foreign way of talking, like if we today were to talk about separation of church and art. Why are those two separate realms distinct from one another? Or separation of education and the state. You know, in, in a society like the United States where we have public schools, it just doesn't occur to us to think of education and the state as contending distinct realms of life. So other countries like Spain and Portugal follow very different patterns for centuries. There also is a different process that takes place in Britain. So in Britain, also for centuries longer, there is no development of a distinct state. And following the Elizabethan settlement, of course, there is there there is a royally backed established church, which is under the authority of the monarch. These are in no way two separate realms. But rather in Britain, people develop a notion of government. Right? So government originally just means the act of governing people or the act of governing yourself. But government takes on this meaning of the specific bodies and institutions that enforce laws as agreed upon by parliament and the crown and that carry out some of the authority that are backed by the authority of the crown. So government is not the same thing as the church. It's not exactly the same thing as the crown or parliament. But it plays this role that you can see as sort of similar to the state, although narrower. There is no revolution in Britain unless you count the English Civil War, when the Puritan-dominated parliament for a while did eliminate the monarchy and behead a king. But restoration, the monarchy came back, and it has remained ever since then. And what you've tended to see in general in Britain is slow evolution and reform, at least as compared to the French Revolution. And, you know, as Edmund Burke famously argued in his view, this was the great strength of Britain, that they reformed and revised their institutions while keeping certain central powers and practices in place. They did not uh, radically overthrow them and, you know, tear out the old system's root and branch as the Jacobins did in France. However, something, a very important transformation did take place in Britain as well. So in Britain, they kept the monarchy, but there were succession disputes. And the most important and most divisive succession dispute resulted from the overthrow of James II, the Catholic king in the 1680s, who was replaced by William and Mary. And many people in Britain, in England, Scotland, and especially Ireland, continued to be loyal to James and his successors and to view them 
as the legitimate monarchs and the, the supporters of the exiled dynasty were called Jacobites. And the Jacobites, in, in their view, the Hanovers and these other monarchs who have been in place on the British throne right down to today, they did not view that line of succession as legitimate because the parliament had intervened and messed with the proper line of succession. So hence, these were illegitimate usurpers. Now, it was impossible to refute the Jacobite argument. It, you know, it was just obviously true that parliament had messed with the line of succession and had passed laws like the Succession Act, which excluded any Roman Catholics from the line of succession. In this way, the, the crown, although it remained as an institution in Britain, it lost a lot of that divine aura, that sense that the king was this specially chosen figure uh, selected and anointed by God to rule. More and more people had to accept that, no, actually the king is on the throne because parliament put him there in in a way that was advantageous to their interests and their preferences. So in this vacuum, now that you have a monarch on the throne who's lost some of that kind of, you know, cachet of his divine nature and the king's two bodies, etc., instead people had to substitute in more practical justifications for why there should be a ruler and why that ruler should have certain powers and authorities. And that is where contract theory basically came in. You can think of Locke as the sort of great, most popular theorist of the social contract. And he was writing the drafts of his essays on the social contract during the Glorious Revolution, during that coup when Parliament was overthrowing James II and trying to get William and Mary into power to replace him. So contract theory was this kind of alternate, you could say, more mundane or secularized explanation for why there is a king and why that king has powers when you have lost that older medieval notion of the king as specially connected to heaven. There's a wonderful passage in the book uh, Jacobitism and the English People by the historian Paul Monod, which, if I remember right, he roughly says uh, contract theory had to sneak in by the back stairs as a way of covering the royal nakedness. There had to be a new justification to, to rationalize royal power. And in this way, you can now look at government as this body that carries out authorities that are not heavenly and that are not really dependent on the sort of special divine nature of the king, although that's certainly how many people continue to see it. But this new sort of contract theory idea of government also gained ground in Britain and also in the British colonies to various degrees. So you can see that as kind of a parallel development or maybe as a kind of precursor that laid the groundwork then for the French idea of the modern state to then take hold in the English-speaking world. So basically, to sum up, the result of this, I would say, is that in the 17 and 1800s, in Western Europe and in the colonial societies that sprang from Western Europe, there was this growing idea of the state as this entity with supreme authority 
superseding all other institutions in society, whether uh, private associations or bodies or clans or the church. And there were just differences or variations in how you explained the source of this state authority. Did it still come in some way from divine right? Did it come from an alliance together with the church, as in places like Spain and Portugal? Or did it come from a social contract, a sort of imaginary putative bargain struck among the residents of a certain country? You could come up with these different explanations, but by about 1900, it's just widely accepted that the state is a real thing. So then it's really in the 20th century that people start to explicitly discuss and try to hammer out and define exactly what one means by the state. What is a state? What is the state? And on one level, that has to be done in international law and international relations. So for instance, in 1933, the Montevideo Convention was adopted by a large gathering of governments, which sought to define exactly what is a state. And according to the Montevideo Convention, the state is a legal person. So meaning a singular entity that can act, that can make decisions and enter agreements and own property and so on. And a political grouping can be called a state if it has these traits, a permanent population, a defined territory, a government, and the capacity to enter into relations with other states. And this last one, I think, is especially crucial, right? Basically, any polity or political entity is going to have people and territory, but the one that really makes the difference is the capacity to enter into relations with other states. So it's the power to make war and peace, to conduct diplomacy. That is the sort of crucial factor that marks you out as a state. And statehood is not really something inherent in a country or a nation or even a regime. The thing that makes a state a state is social convention, and mutual recognition by other states. In other words, you are a state if other states consider you to be a state. And hence, the status of statehood really is circular and contingent. It's basically just an arbitrary decision to recognize who is in the club and who is not, who counts as a state and who doesn't. And that's why when we talk about new states that come about in the 20th century, like, say, Israel, the moment when you, that you mark out as the beginning of the state is when they get recognized, when some other, especially some powerful leading country like the U.S., gives them recognition as a state. So you're a state if other states consider you to be a state. And foreign recognition is the crucial thing. And this can help to clarify certain facts that people don't often point out, but that might seem peculiar. For instance, why is it that the foreign ministry, the, the government unit that carries out foreign diplomacy in the United States, is called the Department of State? 
there's this deep recognition that the existence of a state is tied up and really rooted in diplomatic conduct and in recognition in the wider world. So the Department of State is called that, practically speaking, because not only do they manage diplomacy, but they also are tasked with the keeping of government records and laws and the keeping of the Great Seal of the United States. And the seal has long been understood, going right back to Imperial Rome and the medieval kingdoms. The seal with which you stamp diplomatic messages is understood to be the kind of final marker of legitimate royal authority. And that was then simply borrowed by new Republican regimes. And in the case of the United States, the keeping of the seal and the use of the seal was delegated to the State Department. And hence, the State Department is the real arbiter of ultimate authority and legitimacy, both within and without the United States. And in the Middle Ages, the seal generally would be kept by the king or queen themselves and maybe would be handed over to one trusted official, in a, maybe an ambassador or a minister. Well, in the United States, that role is played by the State Department. So the upshot of all this is basically that if you meet these sort of broadly conventionally defined criteria, which, you know, in this case, literally are come from a convention, the Montevideo Convention, and you are recognized by other states, then you are a person. You are a legal and political person, metaphorically speaking. You have personhood. A, you are a singular, living, acting entity who is not represented by any one actual physical person. So in that way, again, you can speak of the state as kind of the ghost of the king, this sort of abstract, transcendent entity that follows from what used to be the heavenly body of the king, even if there is no actual physical king. And nonetheless, this state must be somehow matched up with a people, a collection of people and a country. So those older elements that were constitutive of a medieval kingdom, a territory and a, a group of people, those are still present, but you no longer have to have a king. You can now have a state, even without a king. So in this way, I would argue the modern notion of the state is just a continuation of the old theory of monarchy and princedom, but without the actual monarch or prince. Now, that is not the way academic philosophers and theorists have tended to talk about the state. People tend to think of the state in, in academic theory as a more kind of tangible institution, and they don't necessarily connect it to the crown in the way that I think is very important and clarifying. So if you go around and ask intellectuals today, what do you mean by state? Many of them will acknowledge ambiguity, but the sort of great influential definition of state that you'll hear most often is from Max Weber, the German philosopher and social critic from the early 1900s. And Weber famously said that a state is a polity that holds, quote, a monopoly on the legitimate use of violence in a territory. So there's this exclusive single locus 
of authority that is able to use violence. And when you think of various agents in society, like a police officer or a federal marshal, they're acting in some way on behalf of the state, and that's why they have the authority to use force. But as many people have pointed out, not just I, but many philosophers and historians have pointed out, this is not really true in practice. You can always find different persons or groups in society that do use force and violence and are understood to do so legally or legitimately. There is no actual monopoly like Weber is talking about. You can think, for instance, up until recent times, it was broadly accepted all around the Western world and most of the world at large that parents had the right to use force in governing their children. They could administer physical punishments. They could lock them in their room, uh, forcibly send them off to uh, a reform school, etc., And those parents, in that sense, are not acting as agents of the state. They're not enforcing some decree of the monarch or parliament. They're acting in their capacity as parents. And today we might say, well, that's no longer legitimate, right? The the idea that parents can use force on their children is more and more going out of favor. But people still are legally understood to be able to use force, say, in self-defense. If they think someone is actively threatening them or their family, they can lash out and attack that person or even kill them and be held not liable for that action. So even still today, even in the most modern societies, Different sorts of people can use force under different conditions and situations. There is no actual monopoly like Weber is talking about. Now, you might say, well, a modern state like the U.S. or, or Britain or France actually claims the sole authority to use violence. And even if certain people are allowed to do so, say in self-defense, the state still reserves the right to judge and decide who was acting in legitimate self-defense and who was not. But that, in that case, we're just talking about the state's claims or pretensions to be the sole monopolistic holders of the legitimate use of violence, even when that may not really be true in practice. And there may be all kinds of other groups or bodies or individuals in society, like, say, perhaps a religious cult, that also claims such an authority and ignores or rejects the pretensions of the state. This has happened many times. In that case, all we have is different groups or bodies in society that are all making extravagant claims to exclusive authority and legitimacy that maybe can't be adjudicated unless you are ideologically committed to one such group or the other. So in this way, the state is not exceptional. Even if you accept that there is a state that is instantiated in the government, that doesn't mean that that government is somehow different, fundamentally different from any number of other institutions exercising power in society. And it may only seem that way because of the current state of affairs, where 
modern states do have such extensive power that it can almost seem, if you don't stop and think about it, it can seem as if they are exceptional and have an exclusive and unique status. And of course, the other end of the question is, what if you're in a society where there simply is no such monopoly? What if you're in a society where there are local groups like tribes or clans that routinely exercise power and the national government sees no need or does not make any attempt to intervene and stop, let's say, a tribal group from disciplining their own members as they see fit? Does that mean that in that place there is no state at all? It has the whole structure, if you take Weber's definition as valid, it's very totalizing. And does that mean that if you find any exception, the whole idea of the state therefore collapses and suddenly you're in a stateless society? So many people have pointed out that this is a very extreme definition and that it really doesn't apply to actual cases where power is divided and ambiguous. And Likewise, you could say, in a way, it's insufficient, that in fact, what distinguishes a modern state is not violence. M many states exercise violence in only very limited ways, but they exercise authority and power in all kinds of different ways that we don't consider to be violence, such as symbolic public acts and rituals, the use of spectacle and propaganda. The, the use of state organs to propagate ideas and messages in the population. So in all of these ways, you could say Weber's definition doesn't really hold up. In some ways, it's too extreme, and in other ways, it's too narrow and doesn't really take account of the variety of how states work and how they use power or don't. And I'm going to point out that Weber fits into a sort of pattern where this project of trying to define and delineate exactly what a state is and exactly what its authority consists in, that project is largely German. This is a problem that German thinkers more than anyone else really took up and grappled with in the 19th and 20th centuries. And this ideological project that you see going on in the intellectual world in Germany, which Weber exemplifies, it was going on in parallel to an actual political effort to create a new state in the shadow of what had been the Holy Roman Empire. So if we think back to the Holy Roman Empire, which existed from the early Middle Ages up until 1806, the Holy Roman Empire you can see as the greatest counterexample to the modern state. The Holy Roman Empire did try to fight the activities of the church. There were these incidents like the investiture controversy where the Holy Roman Emperor butted heads with the Pope. But within the supposed domains of the empire, power was very divided. The emperor had very little actual exercise of, of authority. They did not have much ability to collect taxes. They did not have much of an army. Uh, actual legislative power was held by local princes and potentates in this very complicated patchwork quilt arrangement in the German-speaking world. And 
even the emperor himself was elected. He was only put on the throne by the agreement of the most important princes in the empire who were called electors. So the Holy Roman Empire was, you know, as Linda Richmond would say, neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. It was extremely decentralized. Authority was very divided and very ambiguous. So in a lot of ways, that co collectivity or polity was the most extreme opposite of what we think of today as a modern state. And it basically fell apart and abolished itself in 1806 in the face of attacks by Napoleon. But why did the Holy Roman Empire still matter? It still mattered because it invested authority and importance into this very grandiose title of Holy Roman Emperor, someone who could claim to be the, the successor and heir of the Roman Imperium while at the same time also be in, being invested with this sacred aura from the church, going back all the way to Charlemagne's coronation by the Pope. So there was still something you could say valuable that probably helped to keep the peace among these different contending local states, not only German, but also Swiss, Italian, Dutch, Polish, there was a sort of sense of an overarching order to that Central European world that centered on this kind of symbolic figure of the emperor. And after the Holy Roman Empire is gone, through the 19th century, there's this long fascination with the idea of consolidating and unifying these German-speaking states into something new and bigger, into a kind of new empire with new ideas, new institutions, new technologies. But how do you do that? How do you make a state that can stand up alongside France and Britain and Russia when it doesn't have that same sort of history behind it and it doesn't have, it, it has lost that connection to the old Holy Roman Empire? So you have intellectuals like Weber coming forward and trying to create a new sense of the state that will be just as impressive and just as imperial and just as sovereign as a monarchical state, even though it's this kind of cobbled together patchwork of German principalities. So there's this sort of obsession with state power, sovereignty, the meaning of the state, particularly in Germany. And I would say it was it's the Germans like Weber who go a step beyond what France had already done and try to theorize and explicitly define what is the state and to give it that sort of um, that to explicitly give it that aura. And the term that captures that sense of almost otherworldly power and majesty and supreme authority is sovereignty. The state is sovereign. And the theorist who grappled with sovereignty, most of all, was Carl Schmitt. So the word sovereign, originally, if you look at its root, it just means supreme or greatest. But it has taken on more and more this legal meaning of a sort of exclusive special authority that only belongs to the state and that there can only be one sovereign power within a given country. 
And for that reason, people started to misspell it. And now the, the misspelling of sovereign that we use customarily is S-O-V-E-R-E-I-G-N, which is a way of spelling the word that we only started doing because it was a sort of reference to reign and the idea of a ruling king. So you can see how the very idea of sovereignty and the word sovereignty has borrowed and in, even explicitly taken up the associations and the connotations of the crown and royal power. And the first theorist to try to delineate what does it mean for someone or something to be sovereign was, as I said, Carl Schmitt, who was a very brilliant, incisive political philosopher in Weimar, Germany, during the period of the, the Weimar Republic in the 1920s. And he was very authoritarian in his outlook. He was a, a kind of reactionary, you could say. Uh, but he ha he was very insightful in how he analyzed the workings of government and the problems and the flaws in a parliamentary, a newly created parliamentary regime like the Weimar Republic. And he pointed out its weaknesses in a very prophetic way. After the Nazis came to power in the 30s, Schmidt became a Nazi and he was an active, committed Nazi, which, of course, you know, casts a, a real shadow and a pall over his, all of his previous work. But his important essays that he wrote were in the 1920s, before the, the Nazis were really even on the landscape for Schmidt to notice. And they had a great impact and they're still taken very seriously. This idea of sovereignty that Schmidt was analyzing was legalistic, but in Schmidt's view, it had a sort of essential quality to it that marked the sovereign out as different from anyone or anything else. And in his famous definition, he said, quote, the sovereign is he who decides on the exception. And that's the definition he put forward in his famous 1922 essay, Political Theology. And so in his definition, sovereignty necessarily must include some measure of arbitrariness. A government can't really be sovereign unless it has the power to declare exceptions to the rules. If a leader or a group like a parliament is simply following rules and procedures and precedents that have already been laid out previously then it's not really sovereign. Its power is in fact limited and subordinate to someone else or something else, whether that's the, the written laws or, or really by extension, the previous generations of people who created those rules and laws and precedents. If you're forced to work within the constraints that have been laid down by somebody else, you are not really sovereign. You don't have that supreme authority. So he argued that a regime, in order to truly be sovereign and in order to truly govern, it had to have a certain degree of arbitrary power. This may sound anti-democratic or anti-constitutional. It seems to go against the notion of the rule of law. But I would argue, firstly, it's rooted in the older royal notion of sovereignty that kings have to have the ability, especially in crises or emergencies, to act arbitrarily, to act on what was called prudence, right? his own independent judgment apart from laws and rules. And furthermore, it 
that notion that the sovereign must have the ability to decide on the exception to be able to treat certain things or certain events or certain people differently that is also woven into our american system we think of the president as kind of the ultimate embodiment of sovereignty and the president has certain powers like the pardon power the president has the authority to just excuse certain people from punishment without having to provide any justification to anybody. It doesn't require any approval from Congress or the states or the cabinet or whatever. The president can just do it. And in this way, really this idea that the sovereign has a certain degree of arbitrary authority has survived and persisted. And that is part of what Schmidt is is talking about in his definition of sovereignty. And he further expanded on this idea to make a broader argument about the nature of the state, of this larger organism that is imbued with sovereignty. And so in political theology, he also argues that, quote, all significant concepts of the modern theory of the state are secularized theological concepts. And basically what he means when he unpacks that is that our modern understanding of the state, which I've been talking about, treats the state and sovereignty in the same way that theology treated God. The state is transcendent. It is it can do no wrong. It is it is sovereign. Therefore, it makes the final judgments on right and wrong and on the fates of men and women in the same way that in Christian theology, God is understood as supreme, the supreme ruler, the supreme sovereign of the universe with power to dispense with people's souls, to save or to damn. So in his view, the modern state takes the place of God. And this narrative that Schmidt put forward could fit in very well with Weber's view of history, where he argued that the modern world had gone through a process of disenchantment and what we today would call secularization. And I discussed this some in my lecture a while ago about secularization, another myth of the month. So so Schmidt's views you can see as fitting in neatly with, with Weber and with this sort of overall German mentality that the modern world was uh, taking up the vacuum, the empty space left behind by the loss of God and the loss of a theological understanding of the world. Now, in my view, as you can probably guess, I think that Schmidt's argument is very insightful, but not quite right. I don't think he really hits the target. In my view, the modern state is a kind of decapitated body, which possesses sovereignty that used to belong to the king. And I think that Schmidt is, is there's a big gap in his story that he's missing because he doesn't think of the king as this crucial figure that used to unite the authority and majesty of the heavens with human life on earth. And it's really, it's not the loss of God or religion that the state has to fulfill. Many people believe in a modern state and are also religious. It's that the state has to fulfill the vacuum left behind by the loss of confidence in royal authority and in the crown. So the I would say the early the early modern notion of the state 
in contradistinction to the church, implies that that the state is this entity that needs a connection to the heavens, independent of and apart from the church, in order to have legitimate authority. You know, the and that's where this doctrine of divine right of kings basically came in, the argument that kings have a, a divine majesty independent of the church, and that the notion of the state that then is left behind is basically a back formation from the church, in the same way that church is used as a catch-all term for various groups and institutions that are all supposedly linked because they have a certain relationship to God, and they can dispense a sort of fund of grace from heaven, in the same way the state has been set up as a parallel entity with bodily and earthly authority, the power to use violence and force here on earth, that also derives in some way from the heavens. So I would say that is a, a better account, understanding our notion of the state as a back formation from the church and as carrying over and trying to continue the old authority of the crown, that that is, in fact, a better understanding of how our idea of the state formed. But, of course, there are still problems, right? There are still problems that, in my view, make it impossible for a careful analytical scholar to just use this notion of the state uncritically without realizing how arbitrary and how ambiguous it is. There are very unclear boundaries of what exactly counts as part of the state, who is acting on behalf of the state, and who is not. And I think that that question is only becoming more pressing and more difficult in recent times as governments employ contractors more and more, not only to carry out civic functions, but also to carry out war, our wars more and more, and our security, in quotation marks, is more and more managed by hired mercenaries. Well, what sort of uh, responsibilities do these contractors have? What standards are they held accountable to? If contractors do something like, say, kill a civilian in a foreign war zone, is that an act of the United States as a state? Is the United States collectively responsible for the actions of these contractors? What are the boundaries of the state and who is acting on behalf of the state? Is not only unclear, but I would say increasingly unclear. And the power of the state depends a lot on practices, on what we now call norms, and on ceremonies and rituals that don't always necessarily command the same respect as they do at other times. For instance, if you want to know who is an agent of the state and who is not, you might say, well, who takes an oath? to the United States or to France or to Germany. And those oaths are ritual actions. And for important officials like the U.S. president, they are performed in massive public ceremonies like inaugurations. And, and the courts are delimited by these elaborate rituals, like having to stand up when a judge walks into the room, a judge who is wearing a special robe that looks quite reminiscent of a church or clerical robe. You know, there are these sort of uh, boundary-setting rituals that are very evocative of 
medieval royal courts where there were all kinds of gestures and words and ritual acts showing obeisance and respect for the lord or the monarch. Those sorts of ceremonies, I would say, carry on the role of coronations or investitures, the sort of things that used to be the real centers and theaters of power in the medieval world and the early modern world. But that doesn't mean that they're always going to be effective, right? And I don't have to get into the details of recent events in the past few weeks that I think illustrate how even rituals that are supremely invested with the sort of aura of majesty and state power can just easily become targets of derision or attack. And in this way, again, the notion of the state as this singular enduring entity, it can paper over and disguise, it can conceal the constant ambiguity and shift and uncertainty of who really wields power and whose authority is respected and recognized. So thank you so much for listening. Again, I will include a link to the recent NPR report that made reference to an interview that I had about recent events and about taking stock of the pandemic as compared to previous events like wars and also to the podcast that I'm collaborating on called God Save America. But if you want to keep these coming and if you want to hear the next myth of the month, please become a patron at any level, even if it's just a dollar and you will have access to my patron only materials. Thank you.